The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God stands forever. The word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. We are here this morning studying the word of God. We are continuing on in the life of David, even though David has actually already died. But we're continuing on in the life of David because what we're seeing at the beginning of Solomon's reign is really as part of David's legacy. And uh, we are going to go on. I haven't really even decided yet exactly how far we're going to go into Solomon's reign. But for sure, at a minimum, we want to get to the prayer of dedication uh, for the temple because that's a pretty powerful uh, chapter and we can, we can learn a lot from that. So uh, we're, we're going to continue on at least that far. And then I've, I've been asking you guys to continue to uh, pray about what comes next. I am undecided still at this point considering different things. I know this much that in an interim, after we complete Life of David, as an interim, we are going to be looking at eschatology. And also a request came in, and I think it's a great idea. I'm going to be teaching really on the idea of how is it that we as believers walk by means of the Spirit? How do we uh, function as believers under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, and utilize what he has to offer? And so that's going to involve the filling of the Spirit and submission or yielding to the Spirit and so on. So those are the two interim uh, lessons that I'm aware of that we're going to go into, but I haven't really yet decided what we're going to do in terms of a long-term study, so please keep that uh, lifted in prayer. Well, before we dive into our study in the life of David, let's go ahead and take a moment for silent prayer. We need to ensure that our hearts are prepared for the study of the Word of God. This is an opportunity to confess sins if necessary, but also to humble ourselves so that we might be teachable, shall we pray. Most gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for blessing us with this opportunity to gather here at the church this morning. There were all kinds of grace provisions that made it possible for us to be here today. And sometimes I think, Father, we, we don't take the time to remember those things. But you were, you were right there with us. Your hand was involved all along the way that we might be here this morning, gathered among the saints, fellowshipping with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and have this opportunity to consider what your word has to say, has, what it's going to teach us this morning. You made sure the building would be here. You provided us transportation. We have the physical health we need. I could go on and on, but you have made it possible for us to be here this morning, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your grace that's made this possible. We ask now, Father, that you would help us to set aside the distractions, the busyness of our lives, and just for a little while here during this time, that our minds would be quiet and ready to hear what you are teaching us, that we would be immersed in your word and the truth that can just absolutely nourish our souls. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to learn the lessons that you prepared for us, that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in his most precious and beautiful name. Amen. All right, there's two handouts. Uh, I hope you got both of them. There's one on uh, Solomon builds the temple. And then there's another one, which is a little, just a real kind of a crude, if you will, sketch of the temple. I got that from the Bible knowledge commentary, but it will help a little bit as we're going through and talking about the temple uh, for you to visualize it. I don't, I honestly don't know as I was preparing all of this, I honestly don't know if we're going to get through the whole thing uh, this morning. Uh, but we're going to go as far as we can go with it, see where we get. We'll start now with some preparation. We're actually doing, looking at a couple of different chapters of 1 Kings here, starting in 1 Kings chapter 5. Uh, Solomon makes an alliance, or even a covenant, if you will, with King Hiram to obtain materials for the temple. And that's 1 Kings 5, 1 through 12. We'll look at it uh, piece by piece. First of all, Hiram, the king of Tyre, sent envoys to Solomon. It says here in verse 1 of this chapter, Now Hiram, king of Tyre, sent his servants to Solomon when he heard that they had anointed him king in place of his father, for Hiram had always been a friend of David. Uh, so there's a couple of things mentioned. First of all, he heard that Solomon had indeed succeeded David. He got the news was, was spread, and he had heard about it. And he was a friend, and he was even an ally. Uh, of David in Second Samuel 5:11, we studied this a while back. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, 
sent messengers to David with cedar trees and carpenters and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. Now, this is a palace. This is not a temple. This is building him a palace. And, uh, and this is and it's interesting. In verse 12, we looked at this when we were in 2 Samuel. And David realized that the Lord had established him as king. This was one of those things that helped David realize, wait a minute, I'm actually going to be king over Israel. It kinda, he kind of had that aha moment when Hiram actually came and, and uh, helped build a palace for David, the king's palace. Solomon sent the men back with a message that he intended to build the temple uh, which his father had been un- unable to build. That's in verses 2 through 5. Uh, then Solomon, well, I'm sorry, sorry about that. Then Solomon sent word to Hiram saying, You know that David my father was unable to build a house for the name of the Lord his God because of the wars which surrounded him until the Lord put them under the soles of his feet. But now the Lord my God, you notice what, now I want you to not just pass over that. The Lord his God, the Lord my God, right? So he's noting that the Lord was David's God, the Lord is his God, Solomon's saying that. But now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There's neither adversary nor misfortune. In verse 5, behold, I intend to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, as the Lord spoke to David my father, saying, your son whom I will set on your throne in your place, he will build the house for my name. So he's recognizing in saying that to Hiram, he's recognizing that David wanted to do it. It was his intent to do it, but he had not been able to do it. God had told him, you know, no, that's a good idea that you're having, but you're not going to do it. Your son's going to do it. It was a promise given to David. Solomon then asked King Hiram to have cedars from Lebanon cut for the temple, verse 6. Now, therefore, command that they cut for me cedars from Lebanon, and my servants will be with your servants, and I will give you wages for your servants according to all that you say. For you know that there is no one among us who knows how to cut timber like the Sidonians. Now, so these were the Sidonians. What you can have to derive from all of this is the Sidonians actually uh, were some that Hiram had hired before. He'd used them before to do some some uh, lumberjacking, if you will, right? That they'd gone out there and cut down some of the timbers. Now, uh, he knows about that. Once it, what's interesting about this is I want you to, to notice what's, what's there. He's going to pay them. He's offering to pay them. He recognizes the value of the, seed, of the cedars of Lebanon. Those are fantastic trees for, for construction. We're going to talk about that in a minute. And then he also understands about the Sidonians. So what Solomon is a brand new king. Remember that. But he's already showing here great wisdom about things. He already has knowledge of things and great wisdom about things. And he recognizes, uh, he recognizes the value of the Sidonians who are really good at doing that. And he wants to pay uh, them for their, for their work. The cedars of Lebanon were, of course, excellent for construction since they were not really subject to rot or dec- uh, not readily, I should say, subject to rot or decay. It's much like the cedars we have here. And one of the things I learned about, it was interesting, uh, when we first bought property out in the county of Bastrop, we had cedars out there. But they were not like the cedars in Austin and out in the hill country. The cedars in Austin and out in the hill country are all kind of kind of like this, right? They're short and they're scraggly and, 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 they, and they're, they're, not, they're not really, they're more, a lot of times more like a bush than a tree, really. But what we had out on our property uh, up, up, in the, up in the county um, is we had what's called eastern red cedars. And we had cedar trees that were 60 feet tall. I'm not exaggerating. They were massive, massive trees. And um, these cedars, you could cut them down and build things out of it, and that cedar is hardy wood. I mean, it's, it's good for construction. It won't rot. Uh, I, when we first moved into that place in 2004, I cut down some cedars, and I just threw them on the ground. These were small ones, right? These were kind of small ones. And I just threw them on the ground in a pile. Well, that pile was still there when we sold the place. I mean, they had started to show some, on the outer parts of it, it had started to show some decay, but that pile of cedar was still sitting there. That's the kind of wood we're talking about. Yeah, well, the bugs don't like it. That's right. The bugs don't like it. But they don't, it doesn't even rot because of water either, right? The water doesn't cause it to rot either. It's, it has an oil in it that resists the water, yes. Over on our place where the, tent, the whole area burned, and the, the guys moved through the post where their tent 
Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Even 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 fire, right? So the he, he Jesse was talking about that the fire actually hit uh, some of the fence posts on their property, and there were cedar posts, and they're still there. They're charred black, but they're still there. I mean, cedar's tough. Uh, a lot of people don't like cedar uh, because they have the allergies, <laughs> but but uh, and I get that. Don't 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 misunderstand me. I came when I came to Central Texas in '91. I didn't know people. I didn't know what people were talking about with the whole cedar fever stuff. I found out. It took a few years, and then I found out. But the wood is very good wood. But everybody likes cedar chest. Everybody likes the cedar chest or a cedar, or a cedar closet, right? And the cedar closet, yeah, it's, it's, it's great wood for that. Uh, Solomon, as we talked about there, Solomon offered servants to help with the cutting. He was going to send servants to do that. And he offered to pay Hiram servants, the Sidonians, whatever he thought was a fair wage. I don't know if you noticed that. And when we read that, he said, I will pay your workers whatever you think is right. So he wasn't even saying, I'm only going to pay you X amount. He, he told Hiram, whatever you think is a fair wage, I'll pay that to the Sidonians. And part of it is because we know they're the best of the best when it comes to cutting down trees. By the way, uh, this is something that uh, if, if you go over there. So the cedars of Lebanon are renowned, not just in, not just in Scripture, by the way, in, in other writings, the cedars of Lebanon, they were, they were massive trees and they were, they were all over the place, and they were used for all sorts of construction. There really, there really isn't much left of those in, at this point. There's not, there's not much left of the cedars of Lebanon. There's still some trees, but the massive uh, forest that was there, that was these, these, old, this old, these old trees that were used for construction, there's really not much uh, left of those cedars, even though they grow like weeds almost, right? So, but, but many of them were cut down. Now, King Hiram enthusiastically agreed to provide lumber for the temple. He, he, he responded very excited about this. You can tell in verse 7 through 9. When Hiram heard the, heard the words of Solomon, he rejoiced greatly. And he said, blessed be the Lord today who has given, hang on a second, who has given David a wise son over this great people. See, he recognizes Solomon's wisdom. So Hiram sent word to Solomon saying, I have heard the message which you have sent me. I will do what you desire concerning the cedar and cypress timber. Now, he specifically asked for cedars of Lebanon, but apparently uh, there was also a request for cypress. That's not recorded here, but cedar and cypress timber. And cypress, of course, you all know what cypress is. Uh, that, that was also available as well. My servants will bring them down from Lebanon to the sea. Now, this is interesting. This is Hiram's, this is Hiram's idea. Solomon didn't even suggest this. And we'll see in a minute when we look at the map, you'll see what the plan was. So they're going to bring them down into the sea and I will make them into rafts to go by sea to the place where you direct me. And I will have them broken up there and you shall carry them away. Then you shall accomplish my desire by giving food to my household. So he said not only does he have a plan to do the cutting of the trees, he's, he's all in on the cutting of the trees. But he also has figured out how to get them there. We're going to put them in the sea. And that's the Mediterranean Sea. We're going to put them in the sea and we'll bring them down by raft and then we'll disassemble the rafts. And not only will you have the wood that was on the rafts, but you'll have the wood that is the rafts. So they're going to use the, the rafts themselves as part of the wood that's going to be part of it. And all he asks for is food for his household. I believe that Hiram knew the Lord. When he said, blessed be the Lord, I believe Hiram knew the Lord. I think he was, I think he was a believer. Uh, and I, like, that likely came through King David. Likely David's influence on Hiram uh, led him to faith. I believe he, I believe he was a, a, a believer in, and he was looking to the coming Messiah. Uh, Hiram recognized Solomon's wisdom. I pointed that out uh, as we were going through that. Uh, he would deliver it by boat, by raft, actually, he describes it there. And then he, all he did, he asked for food for his royal household. That's all he's asking for. That tells me something. We've got to infer something. From that text that maybe there was an issue where there was a food shortage in Tyre. Maybe there was some difficulties getting some foods. And so he was asking for food because they were in short supply. We have to infer that because the text doesn't say that. But that's sort of what you get from that. King Hiram and Solomon entered into a covenant agreement and both men fulfilled the terms of the agreement. Uh, That's very important. So they entered into a covenant. We'll see that in verse 12. But you'll see in the first two verses that they both fulfilled what they said they would do. So Hiram gave Solomon as much as he desired of the cedar and cypress timber. Solomon then gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household and 20 cores of beaten oil. Thus Solomon would give Hiram year by year 
And we're going to see that the temple takes a while to build. But beyond all of that, uh, this is something that they entered into this agreement and it continued on, continued on year after year. Verse 12, the Lord gave wisdom to Solomon just as he promised him. And there was peace between Hiram and Solomon and the two of them made a covenant. I believe that all of this was part of the covenant, this agreement that they made that that Hiram would deliver the timber and Solomon would deliver the food and they fulfilled this covenant. Both men did. <clears throat> Hiram delivered cedar and cypress, as we saw. And, of course, Solomon delivered the food, the wheat and the oil. And then the covenant uh, contributed to years of peace. We do, it doesn't say how long. It does not say how long the peace went on. But we know for sure that it lasted at least seven years because that's how long it takes to build the temple. So for sure there was peace for seven years. But honestly, from what I, from what I know of studying this, it went on longer than that. There was peace between Israel and Tyre for, for many, many, many years. That was a very, uh, very cordial relationship between the two countries. Uh, Solomon rec- recruited laborers to prepare materials for the temper- temple. He needed, he needed laborers to do the job. Three shifts of 10,000 men were sent to Lebanon to help cut the lumber. That's how it starts off. Now, King Solomon levied forced laborers from all of Israel, and the forced laborers numbered 30,000 men. He sent them to Lebanon, 10,000 a month in relays. They were in Lebanon a month and two months at home, and Adoniram was over the forced laborers. We'd already learned that before. So basically this idea of forced laborers is basically it'd be like you're sitting there, and all of a sudden you get something in the mail that says, oh, by the way, you've been chosen. (laughs) You have been chosen. And, uh, it, you know, it's, I guess, akin to, you know, jury duty kind of thing, you know, where you have that responsibility. But you basically, these guys found out. But, see, he worked it out so that it was not, hopefully, it was not too much of a burden because they would be in Lebanon for one month and then they'd be at home for two. So they would be able to have the opportunity to still take care of things at home and they would only be away for a month. I mean, that's, you know, honestly... Uh, that's, that's not a bad arrangement. But th- that's what he sent over there. He had promised to send servants to help with the cutting of the trees. Uh, under the supervision of the Sidonians, I'm betting, there's also 150,000 men working on cutting and transporting stone. In verse 15, it says, Now Solomon had 70,000 transporters and 80,000 hewers of stones in the mountains. So they need stone for the temple as well. That's a lot of peoples. Uh, yeah, 3,300 uh, 3, foremen. There were 3,300 foremen under Adoniram. We saw that. Um, supervised the project. I mean, if you need 3,300 people to supervise, then you've obviously got, obviously got a big crew, right? Besides Solomon, 3,300 chief deputies who were over the project and who ruled over the people who were doing the work. So you can see this is a large effort. This is a large effort. And, the, and so a lot of people are involved in getting this done. Um, by Solomon's command, the stones were cut for the temple's foundation, not just for the foundation, by the way. Uh, it says, then the king commanded and they quarried great stones, costly stones to lay the foundation of the house with cut stones. Um, we're going to see when we get to the actual temple itself that they used stones for the foundation, but they also used stones for the walls. And, uh, that was part of the, the overall construction, but they used stones for the foundation. Now, Best, best we can tell, a lot of the stone that they used for the for the um, the temple building itself was actually a, very much similar to the limestone we have around here. It was similar to that. And so, have you ever seen? By the way, have you ever seen? Uh, you know, we used to, we used to live in a log cabin. We don't need more, but we used to live in a log cabin. Which I love the look of that, the beautiful wood of a log cabin. But have you ever seen a log cabin that's accented with limestone? It is spectacularly beautiful. And so I think that that's what you had with the temple is you had the limestone and you had the cedar. And that's even the case with we're going to see one of the walls that's around the inner court is courtyard is actually done with stone and with cedar. And it's just it's absolutely beautiful when you see it. It's just spectacular to see. So uh, the construction was done with stone, not only the foundation, but also the building itself. Now, some men of Gabal, along with Solomon's and Hiram's craftsmen, did the final preparation of the stones and the lumber for the temple. That's in verse 18. So Solomon's builders and Hiram's builders and the uh, Gebelites cut them and prepared the timbers and stones to build the house. 
So this is the, this idea of the preparing the timbers. This is the like the final preparation. This is getting everything ready where it's, 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 you know, you're ready to take it and put it into the building itself. So you haven't just cut down the tree and you haven't just cut the stone out and transported it, but the final preparations that, and we'll see that it was actually done in such a way that the assembly was possible without having to do much at the actual temple site. And I'll talk about that a little bit as well. Um, now we've got a picture here. You can't see it here probably, uh, but if you, if you look at your notes up close, you'll be able to see it, but I'll point it out here. Here's Tyre. Here's Jerusalem down here. Here's Tyre. Right above that is Sidon. That's the, the, Sidon, the Sidonians, right, the ones that were able to do the harvesting of the timber. And then there's Gabal way up there. And all of them were going to be involved. All of, these, all of these places along the coast of the Mediterranean there, they were all involved. And they're all, here's, here's Tyre and then Sidon north of that and then Gabal north of that. They were all involved. And this orange line is supposed to roughly give you the, the idea of the, the, the timber that came down. They would bring it down. They would take it out here, put it on a raft. It would come down through the sea. To, they estimate, they guess, it was Joppa that it came in on. And then it was brought in from there after the rafts were disassembled. It was brought in. And then this green line, I guess that's kind of a yellow-green, that's supposed to represent the idea of where they would get the, rock, the stone and bring the stone down into there for the building of the temple. So that's supposed to, be a, supposed to be a rough depiction of how the materials traveled to Jerusalem for the building of the temple. Can you all see that? Did it show up on the black and white, by the way? Can you see those lines? Okay. It's not orange and green, but at least you can see the lines. So, all right. Now, <clears throat> on to chapter 6. It's, it was the fourth year of Solomon's reign that the building of the temple begins. <clears throat> it's very important here. Verse 1 is very important. Let's read verse 1. A lot of people don't realize this. This is a very important verse in terms of chronology in our Bible. Now, it came about in the 480th year after the sons of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, that he began to build the house of the Lord. Now, that gives us, because the timeline for when Solomon was king of Israel is very well understood. It's very well understood. And in this verse, we have a connection of that timeline to when the Israelites came out from Egypt. And it connects the dots. And that's important because in terms of chronology, that's one of the most important verses in terms of putting those two things together. We know that his reign period is well established. The fourth year of his reign was, was in 966 B.C. You notice I don't say B.C.E. I say B.C. <laughs> uh, not before common error, before Christ. <laughs> right? <laughs> This, uh, this verse states that Exodus took place, uh, the Exodus took place 480 years earlier, which would be 1446 B.C. So that allows us to pinpoint the year in which the Exodus took place. And that's the only verse in all of the Old Testament that gives us the ability to do that. And so we can know that's when the Exodus took place. And it's because that it's this, this period of time for Solomon's reign is well established. And so that verse is important in terms of chronology. The temple itself, the temple building itself, the actual inner, inner uh, structure of the building was 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. That's not really that big. Now, I say that because, and I, what I'll do, it, I, don't have the, I don't have the pictures of it today, but what I'll do is I'll bring you a deal that shows the overlay. Uh, next week, I'll try to remember to do it, an overlay of the, the three temples. Right there is the there is Solomon's temple. Uh, there's going to be there's a reconstructed temple, and then there's going to be the millennial temple. And the millennial temple is gigantic compared to the Solomon's temple. Solomon's temple is tiny by comparison; it's not even close. It says, as for the house which King Solomon built for the Lord, it, its length was sixty cubits, and its width twenty cubits, and its height thirty cubits. Now, if you don't know, <coughs> excuse me. A cubit is roughly 18 inches, roughly, foot and a half, right? So when you find out that Goliath was six cubits tall, right, that makes him nine feet tall. <laughs> he would be a star in the NBA. 
But a cubit is roughly 18 inches. So that if you look at those those measurements I read for you, that makes it 90 feet long, 30 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Solomon's again, Solomon's temple was relatively small, and then the temple had a porch that added 15 more feet to its length. Verse three says the porch in front of the nave of the house was 20. You know, by the nave is going to be the the holy place. As you'll see, I'll start calling that the holy place. The nave and porch in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits in length, corresponding to the width of the house. And its depth along the front of the house was 10 cubits or 15 feet. So see, it was it was along the side of it. And you can actually I'm going to bring up here. This this is to give you an idea. This is I'm going to, we're going to be looking at some of these. This is to give you an idea that they have the inner building there. And we're going to see there's there's also rooms that are added three stories of rooms that are added around the temple but the main temple is here and then the porch area actually adds an additional 15 feet to the temple can y'all see that okay i don't know if i can zoom in or not i don't think i can yeah i can zoom in a little bit all right that kind of starts to cut it off we'll just go there all right so we'll look at some pictures on that here in a minute Three stories of side rooms were built around the main building. And that's what's listed in the next verses, four through six. <coughs> Excuse me. As also for the house, and we'll look at that in just a minute. Also for the house, he made windows with artistic frames. Against the wall of the house, he built stories encompassing the walls of the house around both the nave and the inner sanctuary. So the nave is the holy place. The inner sanctuary is the holy of holies. If you're familiar with that, the holy of holies is the inner inner sanctuary the nave is the holy place thus he made side chambers all around they call them side chambers here in new american standard the lowest story was five cubits wide and the middle was six cubits wide and the third was seven cubits wide for on the outside he made offsets and we'll talk about this later and outside he made offsets in the wall of the house all around in order that the beams would not be inserted in the walls of the house so the idea is when they built the house itself Sorry, I'll talk about that in a minute. When they built the house itself, they actually constructed it in such a way that they could attach these three stories on the outside of it without having to have a beam that penetrated inside. They did not want to have any of this construction actually cause beams to come inside the building. They wanted to keep the inside of the building as as pure as possible. Yes? Uh, they, well, there was a bowling alley and then they had, no, actually, uh, <laughs> now what did they use those rooms for? So two things, it was, they were for storage. They actually used it for storage. And also they would actually, some of the priestly service would be done in those rooms because remember inside, inside the holy and the holy place, cause n- none of the, none of the, none of the average people would go into the holy of holies. Only the high priest would do that inside the holy place. You would only go in there every so often, right? But there was a lot of the priestly service that would actually be done in these rooms around the outside, you know. Well, some of them did, I believe. Yeah, the high priests, right? The high priests. But but actually the Levites, remember the Levites were given land where they could live in each of in each of the territories. They were given places where they could live. But in the temple itself, you had. Uh, pretty much just the high priests would stay there. I guess, you know, maybe maybe when a priest would come in from another territory, he could hang out there for a while. But I think the idea was that as far as living quarters, that would be only the high priests. Yes. What they call a court. court. Yeah. Yeah. So they... Yeah, they constantly had different different ones of the priests coming in. That's exactly right. We're not talking about that in this context, but it actually was true. They would have the priests would come in, you know, just like if you if you look at during the 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 time, it's not the same thing. But, you know, during the time of Christ, for example, we, we read about them going to going into Jerusalem and they would go there because you have the feasts going on and different things. Well, for the priests themselves, they would they would do a rotation like that, right? They, if you were living in Issachar, for example, you'd come into Jerusalem and you'd have a couple of weeks there in Jerusalem and then you'd go back uh, to Issachar. So they would always do that partly uh, as a blessing for the priest to be able to come in to the temple, but also as a as a refresher, if you will, right? They would come in and they would, they would get an opportunity to kind of get get refreshed on everything that they needed to be doing and what they needed to know and 
It was, but that, they did that. Uh, and, and they would use some of those rooms for those kinds of things. Yeah. Because remember the main, the holy place itself, the nave, as it's described here, that was particularly for worship. I mean, they were, that was used for worship. Uh, there were windows in the main building, apparently above the side rooms. It's not said there. And, I, and it's kind of depicted in this here. There's a little window there. But, but so the, the idea of these windows that were described as part of the main house. But then if you think about it, if you have these three stories that go all around, then really those windows had to be up at the very highest part. And if we look at the height, well, later we're going to get to the height of it. There was room on the walls of the temple above the three stories where you could have had windows. I mean, they needed something to let some light in. And so uh, that... I mean, it, you did, for example, they, they particularly, the Jewish people needed that because they didn't always have the Shekinah glory, right? <laughs> that's, supposed to, that's a little pastor joke. But anyway, uh, uh, the main building contained the holy place, as I mentioned, the nave and the holy of holies, the inner sanctuary. That was what, those were the two rooms. In the main building, that's all you had was those two rooms, the, the holy place and the holy of holies. And we'll get to the dimensions of those here in a little bit. The materials for the temple were all prepared elsewhere, made ready to assemble. If we look at verse 7, this is very interesting. Sorry about that. Verse 7, it says, The house, now again, that's talking about the temple. The house, while it was being built, was built of stone, prepared at the quarry, and there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard in the house while it was being built. So in other words, all the materials were brought ready to go into place. Pretty fascinating. Now, closest I can get to describing something like this is, again, I'm going back to my, my log cabin. I got personal experience on this. We, the log cabin that we lived in was an engineered log cabin, and here's how it worked. They cut the trees. They milled them. They put them into links and everything, and they up in, in the – it was up in uh, Colorado, I believe, is where they did this. They actually built our cabin completely. They built it out of all of those pieces, and then and they were all ready to assemble. Every every last piece of that cabin was ready to assemble, and then they actually marked them. We had log A1 and log A2 and log A3. They were literally marked so that when they showed up at our place, it was a matter. It was like putting together a puzzle. You just had to put it together. But the house had already been assembled, so that when we put it together on our property, it was all, those pieces of wood were already cut perfectly. They didn't have to, you didn't have to put a saw to any one of them. They were cut perfectly and you just assembled it. Well, that's kind of what was done here. They had all the lumber already pre-cut and fit to go exactly where it was going to go. They had the stones. Imagine that with the stones. So they're doing the foundation. Those were already pre-cut where they could just put them in for the foundation ready to go. They didn't have to get out there and do any chiseling whatsoever. I mean, that's fascinating. But apparently, we don't know this for sure, but what I get from this is that um, this shows, like I said, the stones were pre-cut, the lumber was pre-cut and fitted. This shows that Solomon had reverence for this project. He did not want it to be a noisy construction site. Can you imagine, have you ever been, have you ever been around a noisy construction site? That it, I mean, you almost don't even want to be near it. You know, everything's going on over there. You hear the jackhammers going. You hear all kinds of stuff happening, and it's like, oh, man, it's just noisy and obnoxious. Solomon did not want that to be the case with the temple. That's what I get out of it. I believe he wanted it to be where at the temple construction site, it was just workers putting things into place and there was not a lot of noise going on. It was very quiet. Because notice what it says in that verse. It says, there was neither hammer nor axe nor any iron tool heard. Right? You did not hear them using tools on the construction site. And he wanted it to be a quiet process, which in his mind, I believe, was reverent. He wanted it to be done respectfully Uh, the three floors of the side rooms were connected by winding uh, stairways and attached to the main building with uh, uh, timbers of cedar that's in the next three verses the doorway for the lowest side chamber was on the right side of the house and they would go up by winding stairs to the middle story and from the middle to the third so he built the house and finished it and he covered the house with beams and planks of cedar he also built the stories against the whole house, because they were right up against the side of it, each five cubits high. So that gives you an idea. That's kind of low ceiling, right? Because five cubits is how much? Seven and a half feet. It's not even eight foot ceilings, right? Um, 
five cubits high, and they were fastened to the house with timbers of cedar. Uh, so that was how they put it all together. But none of those pieces stuck into the building. Uh, by the way, the temple faced east. So the doorway to the side rooms was on the south side. I don't know if they depicted that here or not. I guess they did. Yeah, it's down here. So the temple would face to the east, and then this is the doorway into the side rooms, and there's stairs to go up to the to the other floors. And then the cedar beams were attached to the side, which attached the side rooms did not go inside the main building. That's what was meant by that offset. They actually constructed the the, the temple in such a way that when they put these uh, outer rooms on there, those three stories of outer rooms, they were able to fasten them to the temple without having to have those beams go inside at all. So inside the temple, the walls were completely smooth. There was no interruptions to that. And that, by the way, part of that uh, contributes to the beauty of it. Now, I guess it's a matter of taste, and maybe it was a matter of purity, because personally, I think these little beams that we have in here in the sanctuary are kind of cool. I mean, they make the place very warm and make it feel kind of homey. I love that. So I don't mind having beams inside, but... He did not want that. Solomon did not want beams sticking into the inner part of the of the temple. So that's how the construction was done. They, were, they used these offsets and then mounted things on the outside without. <clears throat> and actually, I don't see Ken. If I had Ken, Ken could probably tell me exactly what that was, right? What the offsets were and how that worked. He could probably tell us exactly how that worked being a carpenter. During the construction of the temple, God re- reaffirmed to Solomon the promise he had made to David. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon saying concerning this house, which you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. I I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Now the actual promise made to David was actually what we call the Davidic covenant. And that was to establish the throne of David's kingdom forever Second Samuel 7:13 He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now this is the Davidic covenant and it is what is known as an unconditional covenant. So it does not depend upon the faithfulness of the Israelites. God is going to do that as I point out in this point here. God will fulfill his promise to David through Christ. Christ will be on the Davidic throne forever. And uh, that includes the throne in the millennial kingdom as well as the throne that will exist in the new heavens and the new earth. That will be the extension of the Davidic throne forever. What really is being talked about was this promise to Solomon for fellowship and protection if he obeyed the Lord. You see, under the Davidic covenant, the promise of God to establish the throne forever, that's, that's a given. He's made that promise. But in association with that is blessing. In association with that is blessing. And Solomon had the opportunity to avail himself of the blessings that were associated with the Davidic covenant. And he did so at first, right? We all know that Solomon did not continue in doing that. Uh, Solomon was faithful in the beginning, in the beginning. Which, by the way, by the way, that's how we know, by the way, that God's a baseball fan. He starts off right there in, the, in, in Genesis chapter 1, in the big inning, right? <laughs> we know God's a baseball fan. All right, inside of the temple, another pastor joke. The inside of the temple was covered with uh, cedar and cypress wood in verses 14 through 18. The walls were made of cedar and the floor was overlaid with cypress uh, in verses 14 through 18. Verse, uh, verse 14 goes on. Uh, I'm sorry, let me go back here. Verse 14 goes on, so Solomon built the house and finished it. Verse 15, then he built uh, the walls of the house on, on the inside with boards of cedar from the floor of the house to the ceiling. Now imagine that 45 feet high, right? And on the walls, you've got the cedars going all the way from the floor to the ceiling. He overlaid the walls on, uh, on the inside with wood and he overlaid the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built... 20 cubits on the rear part of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the ceiling. He built them for it on the inside as an inner sanctuary, even as the most holy place. The house that is the nave in front in the front of the inner sanctuary was 40 cubits long, which that's what I've got here next. The Holy of Holies was 30 feet long. So remember, the whole thing's 90. So you got the Holy of Holies is 30 feet long and you've got the nave or the uh, holy place 
was 60 feet long. So large area outside. But if you think about it, that makes sense because that would give more room for everything that's going to go in the temple, which we're not going to get to today, by the way, but we will get to for everything that's going to go in the temple. And what you have in the Holy of Holies is actually fairly minimal, although there's some big old cherubim that take up a bunch of space, right? <laughs> so, but nonetheless, the idea is that you have this you have this smaller room for the Holy of Holies because only the high priest goes in there. And then you've got a larger room, the 60 foot long room, which is the holy place, the place of worship. Uh, the cedar covered the entire walls inside and had carvings of gourds and flowers. We're going to learn more about that later, by the way. Um, it says there was there was cedar on the house within. Carved in the shape of gourds and open flowers, all with cedar, there was no stone seen. So in the inside, remember, there was stone. That tells you right there, first of all, that there was stone in the walls. But on the inside, all of that was covered up with wood. So that all you would see on the inside was the wood. Right? That's all you would see is wood. A lot of wood, by the way. Uh, now, the inside of the Holy of Holies was overlaid with pure gold. Have any of you actually ever seen pure gold have you ever had it in your hands it's amazing pure gold 24 karat gold is incredibly soft you can take your fingernail and just put a dent right in it it's incredibly soft but when you're doing an overlay like this when you put it on in a fairly thin uh what's a gilding or what what do they call it where you cover something like that there's a name for it but when you use gold like that and you do it fairly thin it's actually pretty robust yeah, gold flake kind of thing, and you put it on there, it's fairly robust because you're not doing a big, thick piece of it. You've got, really, it's the wood that gives the strength, and the gold is really there for uh, the beauty of it. Um, the Ark of the Covenant would be placed in there. It starts off in verse 19 here. Uh, it says, Then he prepared an inner sanctuary within the house in order to place there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. So that's one thing we know that's going in to the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length and 20 cubits in width and 20 cubits in height, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid the altar with cedar. Now, I want to show you something. Uh, in this, this picture here, uh, we've got some more pictures. These are, these are things we're going to learn about later uh, with all these various pieces. This is an altar... But it's the altar that's on the outside of the temple. That's not the altar we're talking about right now. We're talking about the altar of incense. It was right there. Did you all see it highlighted right there? The altar of incense. And that is inside the temple, just outside the Holy of Holies. And this is the altar that's overlaid with gold that we were just reading about. Does that picture help you guys? Okay. So, he, so it says there, uh, and, the, and he also overlaid the altar uh, with cedar. Then it goes on that there were gold chains drawn across the front of the Holy of Holies. It says, so Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across the front of the inner sanctuary, and he overlaid it with gold. And then it says uh, the altar of incense which I just pointed out was placed outside the Holy of Holies, was also overlaid with gold. It says that in verse 22. He overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also the whole altar, which was by the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. And that's that one I pointed out to you. So the, all of this, this was, I mean, just spectacular, right? This all was just spectacular in terms of the, the beauty of it with the gold everywhere. All right. Um, Two cherubim were fashioned and placed in the Holy of Holies. Actually, we're going to stop here in just a second. We'll come back and finish this uh, next time and then move on. The cherubim were 15 feet tall and made of olive wood in verse 23. Also in the inner, it says, also in the inner sanctuary. Again, that's the Holy of Holies. When you see nave, that's the holy place. When you see inner sanctuary, that's the Holy of Holies. Uh, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. And that's depicted in here, too. Uh, there's the veil. This is the Holy of Holies over here. And you see they have depicted there the, the cherubim. And down there underneath you have the Ark of the Covenant. Right, there's the cherubim. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Underneath the cherubim. What's on the top of the Ark of the Covenant? Anybody remember? 
Yeah, the cherubim are there, but what else is there? We'll talk about it later. The mercy seat. Yeah, the mercy seat. It's very important. That's, that's it, the mercy seat. Very important, very important. We'll get to it later. All right, uh, let's get back here. All right, they were 15 feet tall, made of olive wood. Uh, the wings of the cherubim stretched all the way across the Holy of Holies. Uh, down in, let's read this whole section. Also, the, it says new cherubim. It says five cubits was the one wing of the cherub, and five cubits was the other wing of the cherub. From one end of the wing to the other end of the wing were ten cubits. The other cherub uh, was ten cubits. Both the cherubim were of the same measure and the same form. The height of the one cherub was ten cubits, and so was the other cherub. That's pretty tall. He placed uh, the cherubim in the midst of the inner house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that the wing of the one was touching one wall. And the wing of the other cherub was touching the other wall, so their wings were touching each other in the center of the house. So in other words, the wings of these cherubim spread all the way across the, uh, the Holy of Holies. He also overlaid the cherubim with gold. Uh, then he carved uh, all the walls of the house round about with carved engravings. We'll get to that uh, here in just a minute. So they were also overlaid with gold. Now what's interesting, by the way, if you didn't notice it, and again, we're going to stop right here. What's interesting is that Olive wood was never mentioned. So olive wood was harvested probably locally. He didn't have, he did not have uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, harvesting any olive wood. He was harvesting cypress for the floors and cedar for the walls and part of the outer construction. But they had olive wood that they built these cherubim out of. Most likely it was harvested right there. It was locally done. Yeah, so uh, that, that was what they used to make the cherubim out of. And then they were overlaid with gold. I mean, this just had to be unbelievable, the look of it all. We'll come back next time, since we're already at the end of our time. We'll come back next time and look at the uh, walls of the floor being finished, the doors added, uh, and we'll pick up from there and we'll move on. There's more, that, more to come with the temple. But we got a good start on this today. Uh, and you can see how Solomon... By the way, in the first part of this, we saw how Solomon was doing things to prepare for the building of the temple. Was that the beginning of the preparation for the temple? No, David actually started that before he died. David had already put things in place so that after he died, when Solomon got ready to build the temple, that all, things were already kind of prepared. And so he already had primed the pump, so to, so to speak, so that it would be ready for Solomon to do his thing. I love that mental attitude, right, that Paula pointed out, that even when he found out he wasn't going to get to build the temple, I'm sure, there, I'm sure there was a little disappointment because he really wanted to honor God by doing that. But then when God promised him that his son was going to do it, instead of sulking, instead of having his own little personal pity party, right, <laughs> instead of having his own little pity party, he decided, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to get things ready so that when my son has the opportunity to do so, he'll be able to build a temple. Yeah, he can start doing it, yes. Well, it, uh, I would have to go look at that. Probably so. It was probably probably was actually in the it was probably actually in the grand courtyard. It probably wasn't the outer courtyard. There's a wall. We'll talk about that. There's a wall between the inner courtyard and the outer. Did you say outer? Yeah. Okay, that's the grand courtyard. That's probably where it was. Yes. Gentiles could go there. Yes. There yes. Gentiles could go. Yeah. What's that? I don't. I don't believe, I'll have, to look, I'll have to look at that, but I don't believe so. I don't think Solomon's was around at that time, right? Solomon's temple was gone by then, I'm pretty sure. Uh, what were you, you going to say? Yeah, they could not go into the holy place. They could not go into the holy place, but they could go into the outer courtyard and they could even, uh, they could even I think, uh, spend time in the inner courtyard, couldn't they? But they certainly, they certainly could not go into the holy place. No. And that was the limits of, that was... No, no, I'm not talking about the Holy of Holies. I'm talking about the holy place. So in the holy place, so that's different, right? There's a table of showbread. There's other things. And you're right. The priests were the primary ones in there. You're absolutely right. They were the primary ones in there. Yes. Is there a description of the cherubim uh, aside from the wings? 
Yes, we have more information on the cherubim, not in this chapter, and, and actually elsewhere. Elsewhere. Yeah, the idea of how they came up with that depiction that you see there, that really comes from, that really comes from uh, other places where the cherubim are described. Yeah, because all this chapter did was describe the wings. And so why do they look like that? Well, there's other places where the cherubim are described. So we'll get a chance to look at that later. Oh, yeah, they were ready to they were ready to put it together. That's exactly right. Yeah, everything was ready to go and they put it all together. It's really amazing. And Ken's there. He could probably help us with the construction details. Uh, so anyway, we're going to take a look at the uh, we're going to take a look at the uh, scripture of the week. Psalm 118, five and six. I want us all to read it together. From my distress, I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? All right, so wonderful passage. Back to the question about is this the temple? Remember, the temple was destroyed when the, when the, the kingdoms were taken away. Well, but that was, the, that was the rebuilt temple. So the temple was destroyed when the divided kingdom was taken captive, both by uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, in particular the Babylonians. It was decimated. I mean, they came in there and they took everything out of it. So it was when they went back 70 years later and they rebuilt the temple, that was the temple that would have been there when, uh, when Christ was there. Back to our scripture of the week. My, from my distress, I called upon the Lord. Now, thankfully, you guys live lives without any distress whatsoever. So... We don't even have to talk about this passage, right? We're done. Uh, so, now we all experience distress. We all experience distress. Every one of us do. Uh, on a daily basis, I would argue that it's pretty much without one day you can go by without having some distress. And what does he say here? From my distress, I called upon the Lord. That's not the only time we're supposed to call upon the Lord, is it? No. But what the point is, it's being made here is when you encounter distress, you don't abandon God. You don't somehow all of a sudden start trying to handle the situation. I got this. I'll handle it on my own. Right. No. Call upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. Now, what does that mean? Well, a large place. First of all, the idea of a large place was you've got plenty of room. It's a place of relative safety. There's a lot of actually different things you can do with that translation. The Lord set me in a large place. The idea is the Lord put me someplace where I was safe, put me someplace where I wasn't confined and I wasn't uh, locked up and couldn't go anywhere. It's a large place. I'm safe. I have I have room room to ro- uh, roam around, move around as I need to. I'm safe in this large place. And then but notice the Lord answered me. So he's in distress and he calls upon the Lord. And the Lord answers him. Now, what that tells you right away is that not only is he asking from a standpoint of walking, you know, in, in, in a righteous way, but also he is asking for something that God is pleased with. He's asking for something that God is, is ready and willing to answer. He answered me and set me in a large place. Because I dare say, you know, the old joke, I mean, if if you if if what you what you're praying for is a Mercedes Benz, he might not answer that. You know, you might not get that. What I, I say Mercedes probably isn't the right car anymore. Right. It's probably I don't know what's something else. But if, if that's what you're asking for, he might not answer that. But but what what is it that that that's being asked for here? It's being asked for relief from the distress. Take me out of this situation. And God answered him and put him in a large place. And look what it says. The Lord is for me. I will not fear what can man do to me. What, okay, what, what's the worst thing that man can do to any one of us? Potentially kill us, right? But what, are we supposed to fear the one who can harm this body? No, because is this the life that I'm living for? If, if, I'm, if all I'm living for is this life, I'm most to be pitied, wouldn't you say? I think scripture says that that's it's an awful thing to be living just for this life. So the worst thing that somebody can do to me is is kill me. And they haven't really harmed me because I'm going to be face to face with Christ. And but but it's this notion of the Lord is for me. I will not fear. 
And we are supposed to have a healthy fear of the Lord, and that's awe and reverence and respect. But are we to fear? Are we supposed to have fear? Now, see, I've talked about it. Part of the reason I went to this is I've talked about it with regard to this coronavirus thing we have going on, the COVID thing. Are we supposed? We should take it seriously. We should understand what kind of disease this is. We should have as much information as we can about it, and we should take it seriously. But are we not supposed to be living in fear? You're not supposed to be living in fear because we have God on our side. If he's for us, who can be against us? What can be against us? Nothing. There's no reason to fear. And, it, and it's, it's interesting. What did, what did Christ say about that sort of thing, right? If we sit around and we're, we're worried about this and that and the other thing, we don't even know if we're going to have tomorrow. You know, I mean, people, so, so seriously, the idea, of, let's, put, let's give an example. You're, you're thinking to yourself, this is, this is the fear of, of someone doing something to you. But let's say you're sitting around and you're anxious, fearful, worried, go beyond all of that, about being able to pay your rent at the end of the month. You may not be here at the end of the month. Who can even add a single hour to their life by sitting around worrying about things? Can you add, can you, can you, is there any positive that comes out of worry about things, about fear? It doesn't. So there's no reason to fear, and maybe that is your distress. I mean, that may sound like a simple thing, but that is your distress. You don't know if you can pay your rent, right? So you're praying to the Lord. You take it to the Lord, and you're saying, Father, I don't even know if I can pay my rent. I don't know if I'm going to be able to, to stay in my apartment. I don't know if I'm going to be able to make it. So you lay it before the Lord because you recognize that the Lord is for you, and there's no reason to fear. What can man do to me? See, that's the thing. We spend so much time of our lives. I'm, I believe we spend so much of our time sitting around concerned about the interaction we have with others and all the things that go along with that. Uh, we're concerned about, you know, what is our boss going to do? We're concerned about what is the, what is the person down the street that's my neighbor going to do? What is this going to happen? I mean, you, whatever it is, you, you wrap yourself around the axle because you're concerned about what other people are going to do. And the reality of it is the person that we need to be focused on is God himself, because nobody can really do anything to you. By the way, look at what look at what Satan was allowed to do to Job. Think about that. But God permitted it, didn't he? He was a righteous man. God permitted it. In other words, no one can do anything to you unless God permits it. That's exactly right. Unless God permits it. And so we should not be afraid because God is on our side. That's the message here. God, if God, the Lord is for me, God is on my side. Now, see this. This psalm starts out with giving thanks, right? Giving thanks, talking about God's loving kindness. His loving kindness is everlasting. Then there's a discussion about the distress. But up front is the idea of thanking God for everything that he's done and talking about how, you know, I know God is for me. Some believers, I think, struggle with that. Some believers, and I've, I've talked about it before, we're real bad about it in, in the state of Texas, right? In the state of Texas, we have this mentality of, you know what, I'll get her done. You know, I'll pull, I'll pull myself up by my bootstraps and I'll get her done. I don't need your help, I can take care of it, right? Um, but the reality of it is, you know, we need God. We need God. And, and as a born-again believer, as part of his family, he's on our side. And if he's for us, who could be against us? What can man do to us? We need not fear. We need not fear. And I'm not talking about being respectful. I'm not talking about paying attention. I'm not talking about taking things seriously. We all need to do that. But fear is a whole different thing. Have you ever, have you ever yourself been in a situation where you were just overcome with fear? It is crippling. It is absolutely crippling. And that, I mean, there's people right now that we need to be praying about, people you don't even know that we need to be praying about because they're in so much fear right now, they won't even leave their houses. I mean, there are people who since March have not left their house. They're so, they're so overcome with fear and we need to lift them up because uh, that's no way to live. And as believers, we're not supposed to live like that. And I just, that, that's my point. I want you to always realize the Lord's, Lord's with you. He's for you. He's on your side. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the, 
things we can learn, the construction of the temple, the care that's being taken, the, the seriousness with which Solomon took this task and how he wanted it to be a, a holy thing even in the process of building the temple. And the desire to do that was to honor you. And Father, I pray that we have that same heart attitude in each and every one of us, that we want to live our lives and do things in such a way that we honor you. And Father, please, please help us to realize all along that we're never alone. You're always with us. You're always for us. We have you on our side. If we just just trust you, just trust you, put ourselves in your hands. Father, that's why I sign my emails that way, resting in your loving hands. That's what we all need to do is just rest in your loving and capable hands, knowing that you are there. You are our caretaker. You love us. You will discipline us as needed. You will care for us as needed. You will supply every need that we have. And what can man do to us? Nothing. There's nothing man can do to us to actually harm us because you are the one who's caring for us. Father, we thank you for that promise. We thank you for that hope. We thank you in Jesus Christ's most precious and holy name. Amen. All right, we're going to close with a final hymn.